Welcome back to the Classics Podcast, Reclamation, an intervention in the current conversation around theater history, where we recenter and uplift the Black writers and storytellers of the American theater, both the celebrated and the forgotten. I'm Arminda Thomas, and this is the final episode in our series on Black performance in the era of minstrelsy. We wanted to spend this episode lifting up some of the writers, historians, cultural critics, and scholars who made this journey possible, both in gratitude for their work and as reference for any of you who might want to do some digging of your own. So a few episodes back, I shouted out the wonders of online digitized news archives. And while I cannot properly describe or even explain the joy of tracking Charles Hicks or Sam Lucas or the higher sisters through decades of news blurbs and occasional interviews, I wouldn't have known whom I should be stalking without Errol Hill and James Hatch's A History of the American Theater, or without African-American performance in theater history edited by David Krasner and current president of my alma mater, Harry Elam. Research for this series was an all-hands-on-deck affair and each member of the Classics team has a book, article, or other resource, something that resonated with them that they'd like to share. So first up, here's Classics host Brittany Bradford with her pick. Hey everyone, this is Brittany. I mentioned this for a moment in episode five, but the Marshall Hotel really stuck with me for a long time. Established by James Marshall, It became a cultural hub for Black artists and thinkers, writers, musicians, and anyone of any race who wanted to be around all of that, quote, fashionable sort of life, according to James Moulton Johnson. Located on West 53rd Street in the Tenderloin District, it was the Harlem Renaissance before the Harlem Renaissance, and yet none of that history has permeated our current cultural climate. Now, I've waxed maybe semi-poetically, many times to others in the classics team about how I'd love to see fictionalized stories of that time. Where is the miniseries about Paul Lawrence Dunbar and W.E.B. Du Bois drinking gin late at night and debating the state of black folks in the early 1900s? Or a movie about a love affair between an up-and-coming black composer and the daughter of a rival from another troupe? Or what about the relationship between the Marshall and the other Black-owned hotel, the Maceo? At this point, I'll even take a documentary. But I think that the lack of conversation about the Marshall Hotel is really just a microcosm about many moments in Black history that we don't know about, because no one talks about them. Our history is so much more than what gets the usual limelight. It's why the work that we do at Classics means so much to me. So... Maybe we'll just have to create that documentary ourselves. Thank you, Brittany, for that glimpse into Classics Future. I want to point out that James Weldon Johnson's Black Manhattan, published in 1930, is still in print. And it's a great read, hint, hint. Some other first-hand accounts of Black minstrelsy and performance are much harder to come by, but they were incredibly helpful to our process. Like Ike Simon's Old Slack's Reminiscence and Pocket History of the Colored Profession from 1865 to 1891. That was first published in 1891 and reprinted in 1974. And then there's Tom Fletcher's 100 Years of the Negro in Show Business, which was published in 1954. And 
Here's A.J. Muhammad with another first-hand account. Hi, this is A.J. Muhammad, and I'd like to thank you all for joining us on this exploration of this often misunderstood and controversial era. Um, one of the things that, that stuck with me was reading from the autobiography of artists who actually performed during this era and hearing from them in their own voices, as it were. As part of our research, Arminda Thomas, who's our classics researcher and dramaturg extraordinaire, shared resources including excerpts from Father of the Blues, an autobiography um, of W.C. Handy, which was published in the 20th century. I don't, I don't recall if W.C. Handy was mentioned in this act, but I would definitely recommend his autobiography to anyone who's interested in learning more about black artists during the era of minstrelsy. In the chapter that we read, um, Handy vividly wrote about his experience traveling the country and Caribbean with the troupe Meharis Minstrels and what this life was like for black artists. One of the things I didn't know was that when troops came to town, there was a parade earlier in the day before the actual performances took place indoors. Handy also recounted the danger that black artists were often faced as they as they were terrorized by white mobs, and it's something that I hadn't considered, although Handy was describing a time that coincided with the backlash to the Reconstruction. It was an era reminiscent of the one that we're in now in, in this day and age. I also didn't take into consideration the amount and level of artistry that black, that black Mr. Two performers had, and I'm excited that we're putting the well-deserved spotlight on these artists. There were so many other resources that we discovered that I hope you all will dig into and go down your own rabbit holes and come up on the other side as informed researchers and that you like us share these findings and let us know what others you found. I love W.C. Handy's Father of the Blues for a lot of reasons, but it's also a reminder that there was a lot of research that we did that got left on the cutting room floor, as it were, because of the past that weren't traveled. In the South, for instance, Handy and Mahara's minstrels or the Rabbitfoot minstrels, where the great blues pioneer Ma Rainey got her start, or of Sherman T. Dudley, who we briefly touched on in episode four, who went from partnering with Ada Overton Walkerton in the Smart Set to establishing the first black theater touring circuit in the 19 teens, in the teens, I guess we'd call it. So much to explore, so much research that didn't quite make it into the series. And one book I would recommend for those who want to dive further is Thomas Bauman's The Pekin, The Rise and Fall of Chicago's First Black-Owned Theater, which will introduce you to Robert Mott and also the Pekin Theater. Next up, our fearless leader. She hates it when we say that. Next up, our fearless leader, Awoye Tempo. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Awoye. There are a lot of texts and articles and essays and newspaper clippings that are still ringing for me, but uh, there's two that I'd love to highlight. Uh, the first is Music of the Negro by Will Marion Cook, who was the composer of Indahomey. And it's an essay that he started writing in 1898, and then revisited again in a version that was published in the Chicago Defender in 1915. And then another draft appeared in the New York Age in 1918. And it's one of many first-person essays written by Black artists in this time period that we came across. And 
It was just really thrilling to engage with all of these first-person texts that really gave us a window into how a variety of artists were thinking about the work that they were creating, but also what their vision was beyond the present-day reality. Um, and, you know, we talked about so many different performers, and there's so much to say about the musical evolution in this time period. Um, and all the different kinds of musicians who were playing during this time. So the essay is really a reflection of someone thinking about the history of Black music in America before and through the years of minstrelsy, in the face of the minstrel shows, and also beyond. And then the other piece I want to highlight is an essay by a contemporary writer named Paula Seniors that's about the creation of the Cole and Johnson piece, Red Moon. And it was fascinating to learn that the piece was based on an African-American and indigenous educational program at the Hampton Institute in Virginia. So it's just a beautiful example of how artists in this time were taking real life encounters and events and wrestling with them and thinking about questions of community and survival uh, in their contemporary art, in this case, a piece of music theater. It was a little surprising, though it really should not have been, how much of our research led us into the path of musicologists and music historians. Like James Monroe Trotter's Music and Some Highly Musical People, published in 1878, which provided some of the earliest coverage of the Georgia Mentrals, the Higher Sisters, and Sam Lucas, and which you can find free online on the Gutenberg Project site. Also, renowned musicologist Eileen Southern's The Music of Black Americans was a great resource. And Southern also published and provided musical context for Out of Bondage, the play that made the Higher Sisters famous, along with Pauline Hopkins' play Peculiar Sam or the Underground Railroad. More recently, the works of Lynn Abbott, an archivist at Tulane, and Doug Seraf are full of information about early Black American musicals. We were especially indebted to their book Out of Sight, the rise of African-American popular music for its discussion on the rise of Black newspapers and arts critics at the close of the 19th century. And now a word from Dominique Ryder. Hey everybody, this is Dominique. A source or book that really helped me and that I found interesting during the research phase for Minstrelsy was, I think, Scenes of Subjection by Cydia Hartman, which isn't a surprise to anyone who knows me. But that book really lays out the way that the minstrel appears in the plantation drama and the way that uh, the role of the minstrel is a role of emotions, right? That the white performer is able to step into the role of the minstrel in order to have heightened emotion, heightened passion, being able to do things they couldn't normally do in their everyday life. So the, the sort of role of the minstrel as um, this thing to be stepped into, to put on, to play with, was really interesting to think about. And um, it, it felt really meaningful to think about the performance of blackness. Blackness as a thing to be performed specifically for non-black people and what that opens up when we talk about the way that performance and the history of performance in this country, specifically theatrical performance, uh, continues to work and be shaped. And if, like Dominique, you also would like to explore the ways that menstrual and blackface performance continue to form and shape 
the culture today, you can also look up Yuval Taylor and Jake Austin's Darkest America, Black Minstrelsy from Slavery to Hip Hop, and Diana Thompson's Blackface. Remember, we had a lovely conversation with Ayanna Thompson. Okay, my turn. The book I want to lift up is The Ghost Walks, a chronological history of Blacks in show business, 1865 to 1910, by Henry T. Sampson. It is, at heart, a scrapbook in print form, a compendium of news blurbs, reviews, stage bills, correspondence, and photographs, easy to get lost in. And even more inspiring to me is the story of Henry Thomas Sampson, who was born in 1934 in Jackson, Mississippi. Sampson grew up to be an engineer and an inventor. He was the first African-American to earn a PhD in nuclear engineering in the United States. But he was also fascinated by the all-Black films and tent shows like Rabbit's Foot Company that he remembered from his childhood. In his own words, I began to wonder how many of these all-Black movies were made, as well as the larger history of the Black presence on the musical comedy stage. These questions and others would remain unanswered until I began research while still in graduate school at the University of Illinois. I soon found that much of the information I sought was not readily available in published books on the history of American popular culture in the United States. So, using my innate curiosity and creativity, coupled with my well-honed skills of scientific inquiry and research, I decided to thoroughly investigate the subject. And when Samson said thoroughly, he meant that thing. In addition to the ghost walks, Samson went on to write Blacks in Black and White, a source book on Black films, Blacks in Blackface, a source on the early Black musical shows, That's Enough Folks, Black Images and Animated Cartoons, and Swingin' on the Ether Waves, a chronological history of African Americans in radio and television broadcasting, all while paving a way for African Americans in the STEM fields. And that's the kind of energy I am hoping to bring into all my future endeavors without the whole nuclear engineering part. So, on behalf of the entire Classics team, thank you all again for going on this journey with us. For a larger bibliography of this act, please visit theclassics.org. That's T-H-E-C-L-A-S-S-I-X.org. You can also visit us on Twitter and Instagram at It's the Classics. Thank you so much to Twee McCullum and Aubrey Dubay for their incredible sound design and editing work. Our theme music is by Alfonso Horn, and original music for the episodes is by Jeffrey Miller. Thank you again to all the wonderful actors who helped to bring this era and this cast of characters to life. And please subscribe, follow us online, and or sign up for the Classics mailing list to learn more about the next episode, where we will dig into the extraordinary life and work of the one and only Alice Childress. Stay tuned.